0: When the student is ready, the teacher will appear. I guess the student just got ready and we'll talk about it on this episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the host or guest and should not be interpreted as statement of fact. Independent fact checking and corrections are encouraged. This episode is brought to you by FunWise Capital. FunWise Capital is a business lender matching platform. Avoid the mystery of one-sided deals. Connect with FundWise to get the very best funding you can qualify for fast. You can apply online in 60 seconds or less, and there's no effect to your credit to see how much you can get. It's easy. Use the funding for anything you need to start or grow your business. you did hear me correctly, I could say start or grow your business. you don't have a business yet, but you got a solid business plan They can help you get funding. Get the best funding you can qualify for. Their strategic lender matching platform searches through hundreds of lenders to find the very best possible option for your unique situation. They hey, have hundreds hey, of five-star reviews it. on Google, funding, Trust, money, Facebook, money. and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. They provide unsecured lines of credit at 0% interest for 9 to 15 months. Unsecured term loans, loans based on income, short-term gap funding, and bridge loans. They work with real estate, startups like I already mentioned, franchises, restaurants, any kind of business, any kind of project. To get started, it's really easy. Just go to apply.funwise.com slash minddog. That's apply.funwise.com slash minddog. Get your money. Get money for your business now. Apply.funwise.com slash minddog. Dave.
1: Is everybody ready for the mind dog give us the show?
0: Happy President's Day, a special edition of the Mind Dog TV podcast, afternoon edition on a holiday, which is a holiday that nobody really cares about, to be honest with you. President's Day, hope you're having a great one here in America, my friends across the pond. Congratulations for not having a president, I guess. Um, this is a conversation that I've been seriously wanting to have for 40 years, but they do say... Uh, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And if the teacher happens to call and say he's stuck in LA traffic, all that can possibly mean is the student is not quite ready yet, but it seems I'm ready now. Kenny Aronoff is a legend in rock and roll, in music, uh, just a uh, Hall of Fame caliber drummer, and I have to say this, drummers with the exception of the late Buddy Rich, are the best musicians to learn from, the coolest people willing to share and educate. And uh, my guest today has been a professor, a college-level professor of percussion. He's played with symphonies before becoming an international rock star and, uh, most studio music, sought-after studio musician on the planet. He's here with me now. Ladies and gentlemen, please open your ears, open your minds, and help me welcome in Kenny Aronoff to the Mind Dog TV podcast. Kenny, welcome.
2: Hey, how are you, man? Thanks for having me.
0: I am very grateful to have you. And I do think you have um, some knowledge that I've been in search of, and I've I've interviewed quite a few rock stars and legendary musicians. Mm-hmm. And after this... Um, bit of secret information I think you possess and there's a reason I think you possess it more than anybody else and uh that is the magic to knowing what to do on the simplest songs and I'm going to uh, talk about Jack and Diane and, and the creativity that goes into a part like that when uh when a writer or a musician comes to you with something here goes nah, nah, and all of a sudden there's this You know, transformational change because of the drums. That doesn't just happen without a lot of creativity uh, and a lot of artistic mindset that doesn't necessarily come with skill. So it's my pleasure uh, to have the uh, opportunity to pick your brain about such things today. So um, let's start with with February 9th, 1964, because I was watching television that night. Um, I was a little young. I was, I wasn't quite five years old, but I, I have a vague memory of the excitement, but I don't remember the details. You were a little older and I know a lot of people, Liberty DeVito, I talked to his, that night changed his life. A lot of drummers I know became drummers because of that night. Uh, but with you, it actually, uh, it came full circle 50 years later. Tell me a little bit about, uh, how that night affected you in, in, in your life in a lot of ways.
2: Well, me and my twin brother were playing outside. We grew up in a small town in Western Massachusetts, uh, maybe 3000 people. And, um, there was nothing ever to watch on TV back then, <laughs> so we were always outside playing, and one day my mom yelled at both of us to come in the house immediately, which I thought we were in trouble, which was usually the case with me, and uh, I come running in there ready to get reprimanded, and my mom's pointing to this old black and white RCA TV set equipped with the uh, rabbit ear antenna with tinfoil clumped on, clamped on top, because we're in the country, so there was no cable, so... Anyway, the bottom line, she's pointing to the TV set, and there's these four guys, uh, two of which had guitars. uh, One had uh, a bass, electric bass, and they had long hair, which was new. And they were in these cool suits that were not your dad's work suits. These were like cool suits. And the the drummer is up on this big riser, and uh, he's got the cool suit on and the hair. And all of a sudden, they break into a rock and roll song, and it was at that split second. I, I realized I gotta do that. I wanna be on a team of musicians that play music like that. Um, it was that re- moment I realized what my purpose in life was, my bliss, my happiness, my joy. This is what I gotta do. I'm like going nuts. I don't know who they are or where they're from. And I said to my mom, who are these guys? She said, they're the Beatles. So I said, well, I wanna play in the Beatles. So you call them up, get them, get me in the band, I mean, you know, I didn't know what to do. I mean, it's like you have to realize <clears throat> nobody is born successful. Success doesn't land in your lap. It's like a math equation: zero equals zero. You do nothing, you get nothing. I I didn't know what to do. I mean, there was no internet, so you couldn't go on YouTube or there was no TikToks or you know Instagram postings. I I just all had to I just said, Mom, get me in the band. Well. Obviously she didn't call the Beatles up. Oh, and by the way, I want to play the drums. Forget the (laughs) piano lessons. I'm done with the piano because I was drawn to the energy of the drums and the excitement. So she obviously didn't call the Beatles up or, and my parents (laughs) didn't just go get me a set of drums. So I was really bummed. But they saw that I was like so spitting and driven by rock and roll, and I was and 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 banging on things. They finally buy me a snare drum and a cymbal. And I started practicing standing up, playing beats to the forty fives I had in LPs, and uh, I started a band at ten years old called the Alley Cats, and um, we played Beatles music. And I was like. Living the dream, I'd shut my eyes and I was thinking of the girls screaming after me and long hair. Um which uh the first happened, but the second didn't ever really quite happen of <laughs> the hair. And um, uh, but the beautiful thing about this story is 50 years later I've become Kenny Aronoff and um I get hired to do a CBS special called The Night to Changed America, honoring the Beatles for that Ed Sullivan show that I saw that 73 million people like you saw and it changed your life. And I get to now play with Ringo Starr and Paul McCartney, the two remaining Beatles. I mean, it's like a dream come true. Right. And it was like, I could not believe it. I mean, but I also... I mean, it doesn't end there. Now i get to play with them. I get to play with, like, you know, Dave Gold from Foo Fighters, Jeff Lynn from ELO, uh, Joe Walsh from the Eagles. uh, Alicia Keys and John Legend did a duo. Uh, John Mayer, Keith Urban did a duo. Um, Stevie Wonder. I mean, you know, Brad Paisley and on and on.
0: (laughs) And,
2: you know, I mean, uh, I'll add one bit of the story that was iconic. You know, at the end, of I played with everybody, but there was still 90 minutes left of the show. So I go into the, um, the arena to look for my wife to watch the rest of the show. And there are these elite seats in the, in the middle of the arena. And there's Tom Hanks and his wife, who I knew, Ringo Starr, his wife, Paul McCartney's girlfriend, John Lennon, George Harrison's widows. And then there was uh, these actors like Sean Penn, Johnny Depp, and Tom Cruise. And they're all acknowledging me because they just saw me on the screen, uh, you know, a million times. And I knew most of them. But Ringo is applauding going, bravo, bravo, Kenny, great job. Now, I'd met him. I'd played on the Grammys the night before. Uh, and two weeks prior, I did a, an event where I played double drums with him, honoring him for some um, foundation. I think it, was, it might have been the uh, David Lynch Foundation They honored him. So I got to play with him. But I'd never had an opportunity to really have a conversation with him the way I was about to have. So everyone's looking at me, and I get down on one knee. I'm trying to check what I'm going to say. And he goes, hey, Kenny, it's okay. I'm already married. And uh, <laughs> I know, I know.
0: Well, they yes, were always known for their sense of yeah. humor, right?
2: <laughs> so I simply said this from a place of authenticity and from my heart. I said, dude, you're the reason why I play drums. You're the reason why I play rock and roll. You and the Beatles set me on a course at age 10 that I've been on ever since. I just, I just wanna thank you. You know, I am here because of you. And I walked away and I started thinking, you know what the takeaway here is? In order to be great at something, I don't care if it's music, business, law, anything. You have to love what you do. It's not here, it's here. Because when you love what what you're doing, you'll be unstoppable, undeniable, and you will be 100% authentic. And the ripple effect of your love and joy for what you do will affect everybody around you. And when you're that person, people want you around. You will always work. It's not up here. It's here.
0: I have trouble applying that to <coughs> my life. I've heard it. Um, at my core, it makes sense. But applying that uh, is, a, is a difficult task. It doesn't come naturally. Um, well,
2: it's it, once you feel it, once you feel anything, excuse me, I got a call. <clears throat> once, you feel, once you feel it, don't forget it. You know, you have to realize that is the ultimate thing. See, our brain gets in the way of the heart a lot of times. The brain is telling you, I should, I should have. Because, you know, we were all small at one point. We had parents, teachers, coaches, rabbis, priests, whatever, telling us what to do. And we wanted to fit in and, and, and do the right thing. That brain is important. But if it gets in the way of who you truly are and what you really feel, now that's becoming something that's getting in the way of who you are. Because when you operate from a place of who you are, like me, I turned down the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra after all that education I had, worked my way to the top. I mean, I worked with Leonard Bernstein, Aaron Copland. Five years prior, I could hardly read music. I worked my butt off. And, you know, hard work, self-discipline, and and perseverance are the, <clears throat> the, the keys to – to to, one of the keys to success, I turned it down. I turned down certainty, a paycheck. There aren't that many orchestras. I turned down certainty for complete uncertainty. I still didn't know who to call to make it in rock and roll. I was living in a little town in Western Massachusetts. My point is, the point is, I followed my heart brain is going, you should be in the orchestra. You're going to make money. Your parents spent all this money to put you through college, five years of heavy orchestral training, the number one school of music in the country, Indiana University School of Music. And you just turned down a job. But my heart was pulling. Thank God I followed the heart with only possibility. No, no certainty. I had a job certainty. I turned it down for possibility. Well, it obviously worked out, but. It wasn't an easy road, people. I mean, four years later, finally, I get a break with Mellon Camp, and I get fired after two days of recording.
0: Oh, but- I didn't know. I didn't know that. Uh, but before you go any further, what what you just touched on is the reason I believe that you have the information that I've been trying to share with my audience yeah. for as long as I've been doing this, and especially with drummers. You talk about your head and your heart, especially drummers. For some reason, I, I know a lot of really smart drummers who want to think about things. You know, like uh, before, um, what am I going to play on this? And they start to think about it. Like, and I'm always, you know, what? Feel it, feel it, play from your heart. Throw out all of the sheet music and all of the, the music you have written there, and just play from the heart. So. And I want—I definitely want to hear about the the Mellon Camp start starting and and stopping idea <laughs> you just brought up, but this uh, the Jack and Diane thing because I, and I talked to Liberty DeBito about this playing in cover bands, wedding bands. I've seen a lot of drummers who play fake book type of arrangements of these songs and for some in uh pink house somebody the, the other day i was like dude you never listen to the record on that because if you did you wouldn't be approaching it like that because they yeah. they listen and they think how should i play on this song jack and diane in particular is one of the iconic holy crap that's mm-hmm. that's not a drummer that's a musician really bringing a song to life and knowing the drum's purpose in the song to really kick it in the ass when it needs to, but it's such a creative thing. Can you tell me how that, that thing happens, that, that evolves in the studio? Cause most drummers, I think, you know, would probably just play rim shots. or Oh, it's soft. I got to just play bum, 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 like that.
2: Okay. Well, I'm going to answer the question and tell the story. Okay. The answer to the question is when I got fired from that, a uh, record I'd only been in the band for five uh, weeks It was devastating The producer was the one that actually fired John was the messenger But I didn't know that until about five years ago That it was the producer that fired me And <clears throat> he needed a drummer That had experience making records And the purpose What I learned from that experience Which at that time was horrible I felt like a loser Overwhelmed, a piece of crap uh, Out of it, you know you know, I was screaming, well, I played with Leonard Bernstein, Aaron Copeland, I won a concerto competition on Marimba and blah blah has nothing to do with making records. <clears throat> when you're trying to be great at something, it's all about you. As I say, it's about me. But if you want to be Tom Brady and you want to be successful in anything, it's about we, the team. I didn't know how to serve. The purpose. Of a drummer, this is the answer. Your question you ask me. The purpose of a drummer when he's making a record is one thing, and the only nobody ever gets it unless I tell them this. The purpose of a drummer is one thing when you're making a record. Get the song on the radio to be number one. And that means it ain't about you. It's about what can I do to get this song, this artist song. How can I serve the artist, the song first, the musicians, the engineer, the the producer, the record label, everybody? It ain't about you. If it's about you, uh, you're already in trouble. You might get lucky, but it's about the song. What do I do to serve that song to get it on the radio? Now, I had no idea about that. Tom Brady became who he is when he figured out that formula. He knows it's about eleven guys on the field, and I had that confirmed to me from a a, 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 um, a talk I had with a, the center of the Denver Broncos once. I said, "Look, you got to tell me, man, said, is Tom Brady everything I'm hearing about? You know, a team player, the guy?" He says, "Absolutely." I've seen, I he said, and I saw this interview: running backs that run better when they're on his team because. They want to work as hard as him, and he's trying to help the team get a touchdown. That's me getting a song to be on the radio number one. All right, so let's fast forward two years later. I'm now finally making this American Fool record, which has Jack and Diane. You're absolutely right. The original beat was cross-stick. It was like... It's like a little folk song, Little Ditty about Jack and Diane, playing real soft. This song was not... Going to be on the record. Done.
0: Yeah. I walk I in.
2: Imagine. So I walk in because back then, back then, the competition was to get on the radio and be on the top 10, beat number one. You're competing with Springsteen, Billy Joel, Elton John, the police, uh, uh, you know, uh, Tom Petty, whoever's already. All these big bands, and they have the killer hook lines, the killer killer verses, the killer choruses, the killer bridges, the solos. They have incredible sounds. It's not the way it is today. Man, your competition was you're going up other people that have incredible new ideas because the budgets were so big. Bands could spend years working on a record. Nowadays, there's no money, so you're doing it in your bedroom by yourself. I'm sorry. When you put a band in a studio, you got producers and people and songwriters, and then you make a record, and guess what? It stinks. You throw it away and start again. There was money to be able to feed the band. So anyway, I walk in one day, Criteria Studios in Miami, and it's a brutal record. John had already fired two guys in the band, John was going through a divorce, John was about to lose his record deal again, John almost died in a motorcycle accident right in front of me going 80 miles an hour two weeks before we're making the record. Not in a good mood. So I walk in one day and this Don um, Don Gaiman, the, the co-producer, had this metal box. I went, hey Don, what's that? He goes, oh the Bee Gees are using it next door, it's the, you know, uh, we're going to try it on this song that we're having trouble with. You know, this Jack and I hand song with the great chorus. This is this is a Lin-One drum machine. I'm like, drum machine?
0: Oh, my God.
2: They replaced drummers. Okay. I got replaced by two humans two years ago. Now I'm getting replaced by a machine. Now, this split second, just like when John tried to fire me, I call it, I went into a fight or fight mode, not fight or flight. There ain't no flight with me. (laughs) When I'm backed in the corner, it's all fight. And I call this, and this is in any business, adapt or die. Adapt or die. You have to be willing to make the adjustments and adapt to the situation. In this particular case, it was technology, which is (laughs) in everything now. I was being replaced by a machine, no effing way. Grab the machine grab the the manual i'm gonna be a part of this new thing so i programmed basically what i was playing but on the drum set but the sound was different you know what i'm saying it was like yeah. a machine and i had eight outputs so they could bring it up on the mixing board and anyway I hand it to them and I'm in the lounge going like what what's going on? Is the drummer being replaced by a machine? What's my future? And I'm all perplexed and all of a sudden, two hours later, I'm like, Aronoff, get in here. That's the way John used to talk to me. Aronoff, get in here. <laughs> <laughs> we need a drum solo or a drum thing after the second course. And I'm going, on a ballad? On radio? A drum solo? And I'm going, I'm excited because I'm on the record now as a drummer. But I'm freaking out because I got fired once. I could get fired again. So... Thank God we spent all day trying to get big drum sounds. Now, you have to remember, this is 1981. Drums were usually in a vocal booth, small room, where they could control the sound with the mics. John wanted the biggest drum sound in the world. Put it in the big room. Nobody knew exactly where to put the mics. I mean, the close mics, yes. The overhead mics, yes. But the room mics, you have to understand, there's a decay from the drum set to that next mic. Should we do it 10 feet, 15 feet, 12 feet, feet? 20 feet, 30 feet, what high, low, what's the frequencies, the blend. We spent all day doing that, and the whole time I went, serve the song, serve the artist, serve everybody. What can I do to get my drum part and this song to explode through a car stereo speaker? Explode through a TV set speaker. I was I had learned my lesson. Serve the song, serve the band. Crapping in my pants. It's time for me now to come up with a part. I had no part, you guys. The machine's going. Doo, doo, doo. Oh, yeah. doo, 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 doo. I go, ba doo doo doo. Boom blam. And I stop. And I'm looking in the control room looking for validation. I was I was young, so I was insecure. Am I gonna get fired? And there's nine guys in there, so I saw eighteen thumbs up. And I'm like, whoo! I was thinking I still got my job. That's what I'm thinking. So I decided I'm going to go up the drums because everybody goes down the drums. Anyway, I hit a dead end. Summoned into the control room. I'm crapping out. My adrenaline's gone up. My cortisol level's going up. I'm freaking out. I'm going to get fired. I got half the people telling me what to play. Half the people telling me what not to play. My head's spinning. And I went, dude, you're on your own. You're on your own. You've got to solve this problem. You have to solve it. I go out to the big room. And I'm looking at the drums. I felt like it was the World Series, you know? And it's like full count, loaded bases. You hit a home run, you're the hero. Strike out, you're the loser. So I'm looking at the drums. I'm walking toward the drums. I'm 40 feet from the drums. They're going, what are you going to play? 30 feet. I have no idea. 20 feet. Dude, you're going to lose your career. You're going to lose your job. You have to save the song to save your career. Save the song, save the career. Otherwise, 10 feet, zero feet, I'm at the drums. I'm like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm going to play. And they're all looking at me. And all of a sudden, bing, a light goes off my head. Went, all right. Instead of coming up with something completely different, because I was so uptight, I had no creative ideas. I said, I'll take what I'm already doing and just manipulate it. In other words, if you had a room full of furniture, You don't like the furniture. you got two choices. Get rid of the furniture, get new furniture, or rearrange what you already have. Rearrange it, and then maybe it'll be cool. That's what I did. So what I had been playing, after boom, blam, I did what I programmed on the bass drum, on the Lin drum machine, which was now a tom-tom, started on beat one. Boom, blam, one, uh, uh. I just started it one eighth note later. Boom, blam. One, uh, uh, uh. It was all offbeat. And everybody in the control room thought that was great. Before I could even look up, John is hitting the button to talk to me. Hit a cymbal, I went, boom, blam. And then I went, Phil Collins, I'm stealing your gugaku, And I. And I ran I ran out of drums, so then I added this triplet thing. Ga-ga, goo-goo, 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 one, two, three, boom. And that triplet, as simple as it may sound, they all thought that was so cool. And long and short of it, I eventually came up with this groove uh, that they sang, So Let It Rock, So Let It Roll. All right, I'm just excited that the song made it on the record. When the album came out, they released Hurt So Good. Back then, as you probably know in radio, they would test, they'd play all the songs on album oriented radio, and people would phone in and say which ones they liked. Hurt So Good tested real well. They put it out, gets to number two on the top 100 charts. This isn't like, this, this is the godfather of charts. When you're number two on the top 100, this isn't like some of these little charts where there's only 50. 50 songs on it or something. And there's only like two people, you know, calling it. This is the big one. Eye of the is number one. No way were we gonna blow Eye of the Tiger out cause Rocky one had just come out. Right. So that was, and it was in the movie. The song starts to, it was number two for six weeks. It starts to go down and the record label does another test. Everybody likes Jack and Diane. We're, we were like, really? All right, whatever, they release it. It eventually goes to number one. Hurts So Good stays in the top ten. John's career completely blew up. Mine took off. It was we were MTV's one of their favorite, you know, bands. My point is, let's go back to your purpose of a drummer is to get the song on the radio, be number one. Two years later, I achieved that on the biggest charts in rock and roll. And dude, some people—I mean, I've played on three hundred million records sold. Some people never. Or on a number one hit song on that chart. And I did it many, many times. I wow. can think of 10 or 12 different ones, like Blaze of Glory, Bon Jovi, or or uh Blinda Carl, I'll heaven on earth, or Meatloaf, I'll do anything for love but I won't do that. But doing that after two years, I had I was naive to all of it, is a huge accomplishment. And I got I am so grateful that John wrote that song. And yeah, and and it was not an easy journey, but so what? Winning the Super Bowl and easy to go ask home. you know. Nothing, that's, nothing that's worth what, to
0: having is it comes easy, right? I mean, yeah. life is about the challenge makes it worthwhile, and and I appreciate that. And I appreciate that telling of how that song came to be because I was a young man in a rock band at the time, trying to make it in original music, and that was to me one of the most inspirational and creative approaches. And I, you know, because so many drummers just think, keep the beat, keep the beat. My job here is to keep the beat. And like I said, they're going to come in on a ballad like that and just play like a side stick or whatever. And it's just like, you know, you have to think like a musician. So the question I have is the symphony training and all that stuff really important in that giving you that kind of approach that, goes beyond just keeping the beat
2: that's a great question all right the education i got was definitely the thing that made me think about displacing that tom tom thing boom blam one uh because i had practiced displacement i had practiced taking the same figure and moving it over somewhere in my education i'd learned that yes in the education i had with regard to see i'm i'm uh, I don't have one a piece. In, I'm. I write the most insanely detailed charts out. I just played a show. I just played the show two nights ago with Michael McDonald, uh, Sammy Hagar, Chad Kroger from um uh you know um, Chili Peppers, um from what? Chili Peppers. No, no, no. Chad oh, Kroeger. the Chad trigger. Kroger. From um, you know um Nickelback, right. then I, also Alice Cooper, uh, John Mayer, uh, Rick Springfield, Sam Moore for Sam and Dave, wow. and uh, Keith Cronin. A very high end uh, charity. Uh, very few rehearsals. Every every note's written out. Everything tempos, count offs, everything. The next day, which was yesterday, I'm playing with the lead singer for Sublime and the lead singer that's Rome and Duddy, lead singer from Dirty. Um, oh, what's their band? They've so they've made they got eight records out. It's this whole ska reggae thing. I can I write everything out so that I can pivot from one thing to the next. So anyway, that education paid off a lot with regard to just overall knowledge. When I got in rock and roll, I wasn't sure how I was going to put those two worlds together, but there's no question that reading skill combined with that raw playing in garage bands not knowing how to read any music together is what's given me the ability to play with all these different styles of music all these different bands at the highest level to be able to do the kennedy center honors you can't do that you can't do that if you can't read so i'm playing with i'm honoring george jones with seven country artists which is a whole different style of drumming and the same show i'm doing Honoring the Who with the Who up there watching us, playing with Dave Grohl and Rob Thomas and you know, all these other people different style of drumming one is completely on top banging, and crashing and i'm reading all of keith moon's parts then the george jones with the bass drum beater you just tap the b- the bass drum because you want the bass to be heard and you hit the hi-hats very light because it's not rock and roll and you don't hit a rim shot like i crack the drum you hit the center of the drum because you're a different person i look at being a drummer in a band or playing a song as an actor in a movie Who am I? What's my role? What's this movie about? And I adjust and adapt. And Dave Grohl watched me do that country rehearsal and went, oh, my God, I didn't realize that you adapt to these different things. Because Dave Grohl is a genius drummer, and he only has to be Dave Grohl. He plays that way. But if you're a session drummer like me, you need to be able to understand the background of that music and get into the style of it. That's where my education came from. Yeah, that's that's cool. where that came from. My education, playing a Mozart symphony versus Stravinsky or Bartok or Brahms or ba- a Beethoven, totally different worlds. My teacher emphasized understanding the music and serve that music. Wow. There
0: you go. So that's the, where. Yes, yeah, so I you know it, it's apparent that, uh, it, but a lot of people today are self-taught, and, and you started self-taught before you mm-hmm. uh and but rock and roll is not you know it's not you just, it doesn't translate into other genres it doesn't translate into jazz sometimes it does if for, you know you want to mm-hmm. add rock and roll elements to a jazz thing it doesn't translate to country and that's a, a really important distinction so uh, thanks for for sharing that as well um before you got the call from Mellencamp. Was he was he already established? Was he a star? Because I know he started out as John Cougar. And I thought he started out in like the late 70s with, with stuff. And I'm just wondering, was he like a star when you got the call and what was, and how did that happen?
2: Well, he wasn't a star yet. He had one song. First of all, John uh, grew up in a small town also, Seymour, Indiana, almost in Kentucky. He always wa- he had star qualities. As a performer and his attitude Was starlight, which is important Because that's how, you know That's a big reason why he got signed Not because of his songwriting, because he was not A good songwriter, and he uh, Tony DeFries, who's David Bowie's uh, Manager, is the one that signed him And he was the only one that would Sign him, and Tony was kind of like Saying, "Ah, you know It was kind of an ego thing, so I can make this guy A star, well He, he recorded, he helped John record his album. And when the album was done, they're having a meeting in New York and Tony pushes the album across the table to John. Basically that's what he did. And John goes, who's Johnny Cougar? He says, that's you. He says, my name's John Mellencamp. You have to understand John grew up in the Rust Belt. Of in the Midwest, his his uncles who were bad mofos had biceps the size of our legs. These guys were construction workers. You come home and say, "Hey, my name's Johnny Coogan. They're going like, "What's wrong with what's wrong with our family name, right. John Mel- You know, I I don't know if that happened, but I'm thinking, "Oh my God!" So John, and John's part of the Mellencamp family. He's going like, "Well, that's not my name." Tony says. Oh, yes, it is, if you want this record to come out. Because you have to understand, Tony created the, the name Ziggy Stardust. That's what I heard. Right. So th- they were, at that time, there was like stage names. Anyway, the record comes out, it flops, it stinks, it's horrible. And um, John loses his record deal, he's got a baby, uh, he's married, first marriage, and he's climbing telephone poles in Seymour, Indiana, and miserable, hates it. He calls up anybody and everybody he knows because jo- what John's got is amazing tenacity and hard work. And that's what I've respected about him. We used to practice 11 to 5 every day and 7 to 11 every night, five days a week like a job. Wow. We were a band. We'd hang out. We'd play music. And he demanded demanded ideas from us. Anyway, John sets up a... A showcase in Schaumburg, Illinois. At um it might have been in Danny Serafin's club beginnings. But anyway, it's up there. And John thinks he's the only guy that's being showcased. Nope. There's a whole bunch of other bands. He was not happy. Rod Stewart's manager, Billy Gaff, sent his next in command to Chicago, Schaumburg, to see another band. That guy looks at John, goes, calls back to Billy and says, Look at the guy you want, the band you want me to see, not so good, but they, I got a star here. I think there's a star here. Sky's music stinks, but he is a star. <laughs> yeah, and I'm over-paraphrasing. Maybe he said he stinks. Anyway, Billy Gaff signs him for that reason. He says, all right, we're going to work with this kid. So in that period of time when he was being signed, uh, uh, let me think. I, I might be wrong. Anyway, that song, I Need a Lover, I Need a Lover, Won't Drive Me Crazy. That either John had already done. before. I think he did it when Billy Gaff had signed him. And they released it. Yeah, I think that's what happened on Reva Records. It's Reva was Billy Gaff's label. Attached to Mercury Records, which was attached to Polygram. And so they release it in Australia. And it takes off. It's, I mean, it, it was the only song on the album that took off. I think it was, uh, I don't want to make it wrong, but it was not, okay. So then they go, okay, now, okay, this guy is somebody. So they go in the studio and they make the John Cougar, not Johnny. It went from right. Johnny to John Cougar. And now they have an album and they put I Need a Lover on it in the USA. They had songs like uh, oh, Sugar Marie, uh, all these other songs, and MTV picks up, this Mellencamp guy is one of the new young bands that they start promoting. And all of a sudden, I need Lover becomes a hit here. Pat Benatar, when I get in the band in 1980, this was like 1979, eight, right. 79, 78, 79, I, maybe 79. I get in the band in 1980. Pat Benatar decides to cover it. And that becomes a hit for her, which then like, whoa, who wrote that song? John Mellencamp. Now we start. This album, which I got fired on, nothing matters, and what if it did? But had two songs in the top forty, top forty. This time, I think I'm really in love. I'm in love. Right. Not a real, not a real song, but that's what he wrote. And then the yeah. other one was Ain't Even, Ain't even done, done with, with the, the Night. night. Right. Now St- Steve Cropper was the producer. So he, he had R and B roots, and that's what Ain't Even Done with the Night had a very R and B feel to it. Those two songs made it in top 40. So now all of a sudden we get, and Billy Gaff was brilliant as a manager. He says we're doing, we did the first uh, American um, American music awards with uh, um, what's his name? Um, I'm spacing out. Who did American bandstand? Dick. Um,
0: Dick, Dick uh,
2: Clark, Dick Clark. So Dick Clark is doing American bandstand and we're on the first music, uh, American bandstand awards. And, not, they don't want John Johnny John Cougar, and Billy really Gaffs going. Hey, how'd you like Rod Stewart? Oh, are you kidding? We'll get you Rod Stewart. You got to give us John. You got to take John <laughs> Johnny Cougar, <laughs> and that's how we built. We kept wherever Rod went, they had John. And Rod, I recorded with Rod. We used to laugh about it. Says, Ah, I think my money might have funded John's career. I'm like, probably. <laughs> yeah. But but anyway, that's how they did it, and and John just got better, and that American Fool, like I said, had a number one, number two hit uh, hits, uh, the, the album won two Grammys, and all of a sudden, but the thing that's cool about John, it didn't feel cool back then, but was really cool, was then he went, I never, ever want to lose my record deal again, so he walked into the studio when we were making a rehearsal for the record, Uh-huh, which had pink houses crumbling down the Authority song. He walked in one day and goes like this. All right, you. I can't say the word because it's swearing. All right, you, <laughs> all right, you. All right, you fuckers. Listen, I need hits. I need ideas. I need innovation, creativity. You guys got to come up with ideas to get these songs on the radio to be number one hits. And Aaronoff, if someone's got a better beat than what you're playing, <laughs> you play it. And you guys... Nobody owns their instruments. We all play each other's instruments. I need hits. I need ideas. He walked out of the room, and I thought, what a jerk. What an idiot. Because his delivery was like, you know, know. And, you know. but he was spot on. He was like the Bill Belichick, you know, the coach going like, listen, you guys, I don't care what record you had in college. You might be the fastest running back in that thing. You might be the best quarterback and on this team. It's about winning the Super Bowl. I want you guys to operate as a team. I need ideas. I need you guys to do what I tell you. And if it means, hey, you're not now, you're not a wide receiver anymore. You're now a cornerback. You're on defense. What? Yes, sir. And John was coming from that mentality. I don't know where he got that knowledge, but he was spot on. It's like, what can we do to have hits? And that was that's what he demanded, and it worked.
0: I got to tell you, I I was curious about your speaking stuff that you do with corporations, but after listening to you for for a half hour now, I understand exactly yeah. what you say <laughs> to businesses because it's yeah. all the same message. Yeah, and yeah. I'm, I'm going to ask you something, where, and maybe you can't answer this because it requires getting into Mellencamp's head. And know I didn't want to make this all about Mellencamp, yeah. but... Uh ain't even done with the night. When he was doing that publicity publicity for that song, I saw him on Tom Snyder, and he was still called John Cougar at the time. And Tom Snyder held up the record. And you could tell that Mellencamp stuff was eating at him like he don't want to be called John Cougar, even in yeah. that in interview. And he had a bit of an attitude and a little bit of anger and hurt from that. The question I did that fuel the success monster that john became because he had that anger fueling what what was behind him and that and a bit of an attitude because you said you know when you walked away what a jerk. I think a lot of people had that adi- uh, had that perception of him because he did seem demanding, did seem like, damn, it, I own this place. I deserve a place in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, even though it wasn't there yet. But he had that attitude and it kind of came across in the Tom Schneider interview. Do you think that anger from the way they made him change his name and all like and all the record company stuff drove him to become the success that he became?
2: Well, that's just the tip of the iceberg. (laughs) John was John was born that way. You know, he was came out fighting. He was a fighter, man. This guy's fighter, 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 fight. And yeah, but of course he hated that his name was Johnny Cougar, John Cougar. He hated that and he wanted to prove that he is John Mellencamp and he can sell records as John Mellencamp and he got his wish, man. But it wasn't by accident, man. That guy worked his butt off. He worked so hard night and day. He, he was on the phone all the time yelling at people to, like, and he was right. Like, for example, I mean, I, I mean, whatever, however many million records American fool sold, you know, These guys, let me just back up a little bit. When they record label came into the studio, Cherokee Studios in L.A., and we were recording Hurt So Good, they didn't get it. They actually, the guy with the suit and tie said, "Mm, you should be more like Neil Diamond. John walked them out to the door and kicked them in the butt right on the curb. And we, we, I think we lost our record deal for a minute, but went, but then hurts so good becomes number two. Right. And I bet you that guy was standing right next to John for the photo op later on going, yeah, I told him it was a hit. Yeah. Right. B S. So John was really, you know, he was, he had like a, an edge to him. Like, you know, you guys, uh, we sold this many records why didn't we sell twice as many last year blah 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 sold twice as many as i did and they won a grammy you're not doing your job i'm doing my job you're not doing your job i back then i was like oh my god i can't believe he's saying that but i love it now yeah he was he was so on it so he had a he had an edge because he started to see he he worked so hard to get where he was, and he wanted everybody to work just as hard. And so, yeah, that bugged him. I'll tell you that that Tom Snyder, I'll never forget it because, I'm uh, I'm I'm in the in the, the lobby or in the dressing room, and off the 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 elevator comes Muhammad Ali. Now, Muhammad was at that point where he was on medication and he was dealing with, and he was just very soft. He sits at the piano and starts playing. I sit right next to him. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sitting next to Muhammad Ali. I'm just looking at him going, oh, my God. Muhammad Ali. I wanted to touch him. That's the face that got slugged by Foreman. Yeah. you know. And I'm looking at him. But here's the best part. About 10 minutes later, off, off walks James Brown cowboy had built like a he looked like the fighter you know shirt open cold black eyes smiling that's right he came off he looked like the fighter he looked like he was gonna go in the ring right then and there i'll never forget that i mean james brown was like mean lean and a fighting machine
0: Wow, very cool. 40 years ago, we both remember that same show for different mm. reasons. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, now the studio work, did that start while you were still in the Mellencamp band, or did people start calling you for studio work, or did that come after Mellencamp kind of dissolved?
2: it started slightly when i was in the melon camp band uh uh don gaiman the producer of melon camp records had me do brian setzer's first solo record uh night feels like justice with chuck lavelle who's been in the stones for about 22 years on oregon uh tommy um i'm sorry, his last name band tommy who plays with billy joel for about 25 years uh as the main guitar player and then uh a kenny aronson on bass who played with like joan jett and Bob Dylan for a second. So that was the first one. Then I get asked to do Belinda Carlisle's first record. This is when I'm still in the Camp band. This is like one is 85, one's 87. I'm doing Belinda Carlisle with Rick Knowles. She has her first number one hit single, Heaven on Earth, Heaven Outside on earth. of the Goat. And I'm that's my first number one hit single outside of Mellencamp. Wow. And it was just last year that we played together on a show and it was like a reunion and she's incredible anyway but and i did one other record with chuck lavelle produced uh for bill carter who wrote for uh you know like the fabulous thunderbirds and stevie ray vaughn what happened was in 1987 when we were on the Jubilee Tour, and we were now priving, flying around in private jets, selling out multiple nights at Madison Square Garden and the Forum. No opening act, just us. We could dominate a whole arena just with us and all our hits. John, at the last show of that tour, decides he's going to quit the music business for three years. He handed me a bonus check and told me, basically, don't spend it one place. I'm quitting for three years. Well, i just gotten divorced. And so I had child support, I had car payments, I had a mortgage, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, what? And I suddenly thought, oh, my God, I never saw it coming. If he doesn't work, I don't work. Oh, my God. Wow. And next morning I woke up and I turned into a fight or fight guy. I went, I've been working for one artist for eight years. Now I'm going to go work with all the other ones. I'm never going to work for one guy ever again because – I'm at the mercy of what he does or she does. So I started getting sessions, and I went out to L.A., and I, you know, hit the payment, and I was doing records, and finally I get a call from Don Was. Hey, Kenny, it's Don Was, man. Hey, man, um, I'm doing this Bob Dylan record, you know, and I'm not sure when it's going to happen. How would you like to do that? I'm like, what? <laughs> Sure. And then he calls me back a week later. Says, hey, Kenny, it's Don again. I'm doing the Iggy pop record first. How was like, to do that? I'm like, what? He says, come meet me at the record plant. All right. Was Don was was part of was not was. Was not All was. right? Right. <laughs> I didn't know he was a white guy because he sounded kind of like a Afro-American. And so <laughs> I go to the record plant. I go up to Sweet Pea. Detroit, it's totally studded out with the hat, with the Detroit attitude, with the most beautiful heart. I go up to him, and there's like three or two uh Afro-American singers, and then the, the guitar player is my buddy. I know all these guys. God, I'm spacing out their names. Anyway, I go, I go up to them. I go, hey, which one of you guys' is Don was? Sweet goes... I ain't no Don Was. Wow, he's going like giving me shit. I'm like, oh my god! I look, <laughs> I look over there, and there's these two white guys. And one guy's got a, he's got a kind of like an afro. And he's got sunglasses on, and a headband. He comes up to me, says, "Kenny, Don Was." <laughs> it was so hilarious. Wow. Die we and Sweet Pea and I. I mean, Sweet Pea and I became real good friends. I mean, that guy was, man. I could call him up anytime. And that guy'd be there for me. But um that was how I met Don Was and uh, <laughs> and we made um, Iggy Pop and then we did Bob Dylan and we did Bob Seger and we did out John what happened when we were doing the Iggy Pop record Don said um, I'm like where's Don this day Oh he went to the Grammys and I'm like eh Grammys, smammies I'd already done the Grammys but I didn't I was more into I'm a drummer I got to get I got to get on this record I got to play good I was focusing on my job Don wins two Grammys, one for Nick at Time for Bonnie Ray, and one for the song he produced for the uh, B-52s, Love Shack. He's got two Grammys with the Afro and the glasses and the headband and he's barefoot. All of a sudden, he gets calls to produce everybody. Right. And he calls me. Now, my session career starts to really launch and then I eventually had drums in New York, Nashville, L.A., of course, Indiana, where I lived, Germany and Japan. People fly me all over the world to make records until the budgets changed. When the budgets changed, I moved everything to L.A. And I have my own studio, Uncommon Studios, uh, L.A. And people you go to my website, and you can fill out a form, and people hire me to be on their records all the That's time.
0: That's a beautiful thing. All, all the time. Have, if I would have known that was possible, I probably uh, mortgage my house a couple of times <laughs> All my records. um so the, talk to me about i mean because you talk of iggy pop and bob dylan those are two different universes yeah. even john mellencamp and bob dylan are far enough apart do, do you ever have difficulty like switching gears and, and going be, because oh, I worked on Iggy Pop yesterday. Today I'm working with Bob Dylan. That seems like you need to have a metabolism change. I need to ha- take a vacation in between those two bags. Well, just,
2: well, like I just said, I just played with Michael McDonald doing the Doobie Brothers stuff. Then I did Sammy Hagar doing Master K. Right. Then a, I did Rick clear. Springfield. Then I did John Mayer. Then I did Sam Moore playing soft Soul Man and, and Imagine, you know, the Lennon song. And then I did, uh, uh, who else did I do? Uh, uh, oh, yeah, a Nickelback, Chad Kroger, you know, which is a whole different thing. And then I did reggae, ska, skateboard, pop, rock type stuff with Roman, Roman Duddy yesterday. Okay, uh, this all started when I was a kid. I just liked to play drums. I didn't care if it was bebop or Bartok or the Beatles. It was, I was... I I was excited and I tried to do everything authentically. I carried that into college. And I remember the beboppers, I'd be playing bebop upstairs with the jazzers. They were making fun of me because I was doing classical music. Classical music when people were making fun of me, I was doing jazz. And both of them made fun of me because I was doing country, R&B, and rock and roll in the clubs. But I just wanted to, I was just having fun. And what happened was I started to learn how to pivot from one thing to the next. One thing to the next. So, um, uh, but you see, here's the thing: if you're, if you want to play all that different music, that doesn't mean people want you. You get pigeonholed. Listen, I did the Highwaymen record, Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson, Waylon Jennings, and I got an audition, one of five drummers, and won it for the Smashing Pumpkins when they were the number one alternative band in the world. How does a drummer? who plays on the High Women record, even get an audition. If you're a rock drummer, you may not get an audition with the Pumpkins. They might want a very specific rock drummer, but somehow I did. And I did the last year and a half recently, performing live with Jerry Lee Lewis. Wow. The guy who invented rock and roll in the 50s. And how does that guy end up with, on Michelle Branch, Avril Lavigne, oh, Celine Dion, oh? I played with Ray Charles, B.B. King, and, and you know, uh, Buddy Guy. I played Buddy Guy three times this year or last wow. year. Wow. I yeah. mean, so, dude, I mean, you have to, it's like being an actor. First of all, I'm fortunate that I get the calls to do all that. But, oh, my God. But when I do do it, you know, you got to study what's the right way to play their music.
0: That's what I was going to ask you. Like, yeah, how much preparation goes into, you know, especially today, you know the the people who are going to be calling you are going to be 40 years younger than you. <laughs> and, and so you have to get into that, you know, what are, what are they, because you grew up in the, the Beatle era and classic rock era and, and then moved into the new age, uh, new wave era, uh, era yeah. in the eighties. These it, what's passing for music today? Now I'm not like one of these old Curmudgeons who said ah, the music is no good today. I think it's like great quality music, but it's definitely different. Uh, it, it's a different approach uh, than than what we grew up on. So you know you have to do a lot of studying the the artists you're playing with, uh, and how how much Advanced time do you need on that to get to know them?
2: Dude, I've I've been I've written charts on the plane finds. <laughs> From L.A. to New York land and then record those songs. You
0: know, I worked with Paul Schaefer one time. I played him a demo tape, and while I was playing the demo tape, he got out sheet music and he was writing down.
2: (laughs) Dude, I'm I'm telling you, I I could show you, but I'd have to go off camera, but I can show. My charts are so involved, and the reason why is because uh, I can put it up there and start sight reading. Now, the way I record, someone sends me songs, I tell them to send me the demo and I write out exactly what the drum program or the sequences because they've been hearing that forever. I write it out and I rehearse. I, I can record 10 songs in one day, but I prepare like a mofo. So I prepare by writing the chart up, practicing the song twice or three times or whatever it takes. The day I record, now I'm performing. Two or three takes, I'm done. That's it, because I'm already in performance mode. There's a thing I, I talk about when I speak called RPS, the repetition of any skill. The repetition of any skill is the preparation for success. It's no. There's no brain surgery. There's no zero equals zero. If you do nothing, you get nothing. Sorry, folks, you get nothing. If you do nothing, you get nothing. As a matter of fact, if you're doing nothing and I'm doing a lot, I'm going to be probably get what you want. Right. It's yeah. that simple. If you're going to go in it with, like, trying to s- – just kind of get by you're going to get get by that's it you might get lucky but nah. to be tom brady it's work all the way until you decide i'm done so this is um and i tell people just you want to max in your life you want to be the best that you can be not everybody's built the same way just be the best that you can be and get the most value out of your life.
0: That's important.
2: So, so I mean, so writing all this stuff down expedites. And I like to when I record at this point, I want to enjoy myself. So it's all about performing. I don't, I'm not, I don't want to sit there and do 800 takes when I was younger. I didn't care. But now it's all about performing. So I would rather get the music, I get the music ahead of time, write the chart out, practice it so that when it's time to record, I go bam, bam, bam. And that's the way I do it.
0: Well, I I super appreciate getting this time to talk with you. I would normally be very selfish about this and just be the one asking a question. Somebody in the chat room has a question. Sure. I feel like I, I I owe them because I would want to know about this too. Uh, can Kenny talk about recording with Bob Dylan? I heard he doesn't give any direction to his musicians, and he he only does one take each song. Uh,
2: Good question. <laughs> so the, first, the, the album I did was Under the Red Sky, uh bob didn't give any uh don the songs he didn't know what songs they were going to record so as a producer and he was a young producer at that point so don said well i'm not going to tell bob what musicians we're going to use so every i did all the sessions four different days in maybe three or four months because bob was on tour the only time bob talked to me was he was sitting i'm sitting in the chair with my back to the door He's two hours late. He comes up and he taps me on the shoulder. I turn around like, oh my God, it's Bob Dylan. He says, Kenny, nice to meet you, Bob Dylan. That was it. He goes to the piano. I watch him go to the piano. He starts playing. Bing, bing, bing. A light goes off my head. I go right to the drums. It's just me and him. He starts playing. I start playing. And engineer hits record. All the other guys come from the dressing room or the uh, the lounge. In there, they get on their instruments and start playing along with them. And maybe he started again. That was it. Wow! I think yeah, that's I heard how it had a caught. natural Whitney spotlight.
0: He Wh- he went into the studio. He was still writing when he when he got to well, that's thing.
2: that's that's what he was doing. So, and uh, cool. and and yeah, you never knew. You, I always thought everything is a take, everything. Right. And he he likes it. I like that. You get great musicians, you can do that. I mean, that first session, Stevie Ray Vaughan and Jimmy Vaughan were on that session. That was the year J- Stevie died.
0: Wow. Okay. I remember that pretty clearly. I think it was 98. 98. Wow. Uh, he- heavy stuff there. You mm-hmm. know, um, and I, I do want to be respectful of your time and let you go. I, I think I shared the experience of seeing somebody who changed my life. Uh, you know, Mark Farner when I was uh, mm. like 10 years old, they didn't have, it was long before MTV. Uh, I was in a movie theater and they ran trailers before the movies in the movie theater. And mm. he came up, they were playing uh, American Band and that, that's an iconic drum lead in right oh, there. yeah. And then he comes up over this hill on a tractor with his wild long hair. And I said, that's what I want to be when I grow up. And then years later, I got to meet him and work with him and now call him a friend. So I'm just thinking that, Because there's no substitute of what your experience of being influenced by a Ringo Starr and then getting to play with him and know him and all that. But you know, I wish everybody could have that experience to see one of your childhood heroes and then you grew up to work with them and and gain their respect. There's no, you know, that's magical. Do you ever? So the final question is: There anything? I know you talk about hard work and, you know, is zero, equals zero. Is there anything to luck and being in the right place at the right time and kismet and all of that stuff? Does it play any role in this or not?
2: The, the luck is being at the right place at the right time, but you better have your shit together. Huh? Because you get an opportunity, but you better have your shit together. I mean, or you hope you do. I mean, you. The, the, so luck will get you you know, the luck part is you happen to be in the room at the right time. You happen to be recording in this room and next door is you too. And I go, oh, I I know a great one. I was recording with Joe Cocker and I went next door, uh, because, um, I'm spacing out the name. It's my kid's favorite band. It wasn't Slipknot. It was, um, um, it was some like, like, it, it was, um, Oh man. Anyway, it was something like completely different than like, you know.
0: Yeah, Slipknot you know, is hard. So I'm thinking it was a hard type of band. <laughs> it was a
2: hard, it was definitely a hard band. What am I thinking? Um, it was um anyway, I go next door to get an autograph from the the lead singer, and uh the producer says, Hey Kenny, get on the drums. I'm like, What? Yeah, no, get on drums. Everybody's switching instruments. We recorded a song. Uh, everybody switched instruments, and the drummer was playing. I don't know what he was playing. That song almost ended up on the record. Wow! I mean, it was like, I mean, so the, the the luck was, I walked into that room, and all of a sudden, but the I could play drums at that point, and I wasn't intimidated. I walked on, bam! But that's kind of a weird story. But but back to what you're saying, you know, luck comes by just coincidences, but if you got to have your stuff together.
0: Yeah, good, good, good stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, again, I uh, think valuable insights. And I think that you brought something to rock and roll and, and to, to pop music and popular music that is really important for uh, musicians, which is why I was so excited to be able to talk to you today. Because I think a lot of people go, uh, there are a lot of self produced people, a lot of people have their own uh, private studios, and nobody knows how to make. A song magical. Make it a hit. Make it a memorable, memorable part rather than going in there. Because we're taught, you know, basically drums do this, bass do this, and and you're kind of locked into what came before rather than treating it as a a blank canvas that you need to create great art that will last ages for. And I think you you set the pattern for that. So it's been my extreme pleasure to get Thank to you. pick your brain a little bit. Thank, Thank you for coming. Thank
2: you. Awesome, you. man. Everybody? Nice meeting you.
0: Bye for now. Bye. Thanks. All
2: right. Bye. Take care, man.
0: Bye. The great Kenny Arnold, folks, I uh, appreciate your thoughts uh, on that. Write to me at info at com. You drummers out there uh, just got uh, the best education you're going to get in one hour. <laughs> um, phenomenal stuff. The Jack and Diane stuff has been in my mind for Ever, since I first heard the record, like, holy crap, that's not what you expect from a record like this. My intent today was to tape this show and use it as a coffee with the dog tomorrow, but my schedule got filled up and that wasn't possible. So you got a special 330 edition here. I'm probably going to have to uh, replay this as a morning edition or an evening edition at some point, uh, just because... A lot of gems in there a lot of really for musicians people looking to make a living in music again you're not going to get a better education in an hour thanks for coming have a great day i'm going to be back doing this again in about three hours or so three and a half hours uh i have a um andrew riggs comedian on tonight and look forward to that. Uh, I'm gonna still probably be a little bit high buzzed high uh from this conversation then. Anyway, that's the show. Thanks for coming. Uh do write to me at I'll see you later. Turn on your radio button.
1: Listen to me, listen to me.